what would you say to someone working in a very digitally immature organization but wanting to sort of embed UCD practices and, and try and get the organization thinking in a more user-centered way? So what would I say to them? First of all, um, be kind to yourself because that stuff is hard. Um, and it's not a case of uh, just going in and dialing it in every day. Um, it's it's a much more, um, you require a deeper set of resilient skills to be able to survive in those kind of uh, places, especially if you've come from a place where design is accepted and that could be from university or academia whatever it is you you have to really figure out where the opportunities lie for you to to play to deliver value to both just the customer and the business um but to start it off um i would really try and identify the least amount of effort that you can actually do to get the most amount of reward for the business Hi, I'm Mike Green, a freelance user research lead and digital consultant based in the UK. Welcome to Understanding Users. In this podcast series, I chat with digital experts from a variety of disciplines, including user research, UX and service design, development and product management, and there's even a founder or two. I talk to them about how they came to be in their current roles, what they've learned along the way, and the challenges they face in designing and building digital products and services with users in mind. These are intended to be relaxed, informal chats with professionals who are keen to share their experiences. So sit back and enjoy. Okay, so my guest this time is Jerry Scullion. Uh, and Jerry is a man who wears many hats, including service designer, design educator, mentor, and uh, another UX podcaster, um, it's great to have you on the show, Jerry. Thanks uh, for talking to me. Absolutely delighted to be here, Mike. I'm intrigued. How do you find time to do all of those things, Jerry? You're a, you're a busy soul. Well, uh, to do all of them, it's it's a it's a juggling act. Um, but I have a couple of people that work with me to help ease the process of scheduling things, as you've probably encountered a few of them. But it's it's really about having a, a team of people around me to to produce a lot of the stuff. Um, I'm a big fan of Tim Ferriss, as I just mentioned him there to you. And one of the the kind of key pieces that Tim Ferriss mentioned years and years ago was really um, shipping out the pieces that are causing the most friction, and um, which I've been speaking to you a little bit more around editing the podcasts and uh, doing all of that stuff. So we have a team of people that do that, and I pay people to do that for me. Otherwise, I just wouldn't be able to find the time to, to do anything or earn money or, you know, play play with my kids or any of that kind of stuff so that's kind of how i managed to do uh quite a lot of stuff at the same time that's great and the podcast itself is uh this is hcd right yeah that's correct this is human-centered design network is what we like to call it uh, mainly because there's been other people collaborate over the years and jerry mcgovern is one of um the the remaining collaborators you know top tasks fame a wonderful collaborator and he's a podcast called worldwide waste which talks about how digital is, is destroying the planet. And we talk about sustainability on that, on that podcast. But um, really at the moment, it's, it's primarily just me publishing content uh, on This Is HCD. And, and taking a step back, because I know you've been in this digital world, this digital game of ours for what, 20 odd years. Is that yeah, right? I'm interested to kind of talk me through kind of how you got to where you are now in terms yeah. of your career. I mean, I studied industrial design in 2000. I finished in 2002. 
And when I left at that point, um, it was the Celtic Tiger was in Ireland. I don't know if people know what the Celtic Tiger is, but it was a lot of affluence in uh, in Dublin at that point. And I remember going to a bar in Dublin and I tell the story of uh, standing at the bar and looking down this bar. It was called Cafe and Sen. It's still there. It's kind of a, a bit of a loity-toity bar. And there was about nine bottles of Dom Perignon being bought at the same time at 250 quid a bottle. And I'm like, I can't afford another pint. <laughs> okay, right. <laughs> I was so poor. And I came out of university as an industrial designer and there was no industrial design jobs. And, right. you know, I had to basically interview a place and they're like, so what could we have him do? Could he, can you do brochures? Can you do graphic design? I'm like, no, no. And I felt useless, honestly, for about three or four years uh, until I really, I learned, I picked, I bought a book in HTML in 2003 that kind of changed my life. And I started getting into web design and I ultimately got out of industrial design and, and worked as a web designer for a number of years until it took me to Australia back again for the second time in 2006 or 2007. Uh, and I worked for TBWA, the ad agency. And I was wowed by all of these big brands in those days. I was like, wow, I'm going to get to work in Visa. That's in, that's amazing. I remember the first website it was uh, was Visa. And then New Line Cinema was the other one. We'd just done... Um, a website for a Jack Black movie or something like that. And I knew a little bit of Flash, knew a little bit of uh, HTML to be dangerous, knew CSS. But these were the days when Internet Explorer 5 used to keep me awake at night. And uh, I worked in that space for two or three years, and then I went to MySpace way back in the day. Wow. <laughs> Lost from the past. <laughs> yeah, I went to MySpace, but it was it was a learning experience. And then from that... I kind of uh, entered the world of user experience um, pretty much full time from then on. So, yeah, that's kind of uh, the, the next 10 years after that were, were kind of I got a lot of my experience, my formative experience and primarily worked as a user experience and service designer. And how has UX as a discipline, of Jerry, all... kind of changed in the last five to 10 years, would you say? Yeah, because things, you know, it seems to be accelerating ever more rapidly things at the pace of change is increasing looking back what's different about how things are done now well in 2008 when i was probably changing my title to have user experience in it at that stage and then kind of looking over my shoulder as i was doing it um because i was learning on the job an awful lot of the time reading blogs and kind of looking out who was doing interesting stuff at that point we had to sell user experience in and really understand um, where the opportunities lay for us to deliver value for the businesses. That was the first maybe four or five years up until 2011, 2012. And then businesses started to really look for it in Australia, uh, in particular, where I have majority of my experience has been in that territory. Um, I found over the course of maybe 2011 to 2014 or in around those years, UX started to lose a bit of its identity started to lose a little bit of its kind of oomph, so to speak. It was getting a little bit mixed up into the worlds of digital design only, screen-based design. And it was at that point that I kind of went, well, actually, I've always been more interested in the business function or the strategic side of design. And I saw a canvas by Mark Stickdorn and Jakob Schneider around service design. It was actually around the customer journey map. Uh, that broke the services apart into the pre-service and the service and the post-service experiences and all the contributing factors that go into the delivering those services that it suddenly went, 
ah, yeah, it's not just about the user experience. It's about all these other contributing factors. So um, that was probably when I started to say, I want to do this thing. I want to do more service design strategic type work. And I um, I started to get more opportunities in that space. Um, I was probably at the right age as well. Um, if I was in my early 20s and I'm wanting to do that, I feel I wouldn't have had the opportunities. But because I had nearly a decade at that stage of experience and user experience, and I built my sort of management capability up a lot more, I was able to have those strategic conversations with stakeholders without kind of like shirking behind, uh, you know, my laptop and, you know, wait, waiting to be punched. But uh, so that's kind of where I noticed the shift really. And user experience from that point on has been, I feel, I feel anyway, my perspective, pretty screen-based um, to the point of either apps or, or websites. Mm. And you mentioned maturity there, Jerry. I mean, we, before we started the recording, we were talking a little bit about kind of maturity levels of organizations, mm. which surprisingly in some ways continues to be kind of an issue, I suppose, there's various levels of maturity. Yeah. What would you say to someone working in a very digitally immature organization, but wanting to sort of embed UCD practices and, and try and get the organization thinking in a more user-centered way? So what would I say to them? First of all, um, be kind to yourself because that stuff is hard. Um, and it's not a case of uh, just going in and dialing it in every day. Um, it's it's a much more, um, you require a deeper set of resilient skills to be able to survive in those kind of uh, places, especially if you've come from a place where design is accepted. And that could be from university or academia, whatever it is you you have to really figure out where the opportunities lie for you to to play to deliver value to both just the customer and the business um but to start it off um i would really try and identify the least amount of effort that you can actually do to get the most amount of reward for the business um i would probably do a few things in particular uh to kickstart one of the we will be trying to offer an educational plan, something that really helps uh, narrow down what it is about design that we're trying to achieve. Otherwise, you can end up running on your own kind of narrative on what you believe and no one else believes it as well. So creating that shared language through some sort of training module or something that gets them up to speed on what it is you're trying to do um, and make sure that you've got people on the same page. Too often I hear people... um, just fighting the fight and no one else knows that they're fighting the fight. Um, and that's a really important distinguishing factor. Um, and it's not always about those tools. To me, it's all about facilitating conversations and really being able to listen because it's not a case of, um, you know, like St. Patrick came to Ireland and delivered Christianity to, to the people of Ireland. It's not the same. Okay. It's not the same of going into an organization and just waiting for your moment to kind of go any day now, I'm going to get to stand on that table and deliver the message that's going to solve all the problems. That's not going to happen. Okay. So, um, it really is a journey. And, um, I was speaking to somebody yesterday and I reflected on a talk with now one of my friends, his name is Victor Rodriguez, and he's the head of customer for Cochlear in Australia. They're a medical device business. They provide provide hearing solutions to the profoundly deaf. And I worked there for a number of years. And when I was leaving Australia in 2018, I caught up with him and I said, hey, listen, 
you know, you were the first person to bring user experience into the conversation in the organization. I said, how long has it been to the point now where we can say that there is a mature function? And we, we traced it back and we said, it's about 10 years. So that whole arc of going from nothing to something uh, is about 10 years. So it's really important to call these kind of numbers out because I speak to people who've just been in the job for six months or seven months. And they're like, oh, I'm not getting anywhere. I'm a, you know, I feel like I'm, uh, I'm, you know, fighting the fight on my own. And it was really um, important for us to stand back and say, well, actually, what happened in those 10 years? What were the kind of incidences that happened that really brought the conversation forward? And it tends to be the first couple of hires um, where the business weren't looking for graduate user experience designers to come in and expect them to radically transform the organization with six months experience. It came with investing in um, established practitioners who really understand the power of what it is they're going to be able to do, but they also have those human skills. And that's the human skills that I'm all often reflecting on that we don't learn at university. We learn that tend to be when we're working in organizations in complex environments and in complex situations where you have to think on your feet. Mm, lots of wise words there. And the example I always come back to from my own experience is, is UK government and the government digital service. And that's you know, all right. the government set up, the UK government set up uh, GDS what, more than 10 years ago, to your point around kind of yeah. how long it's been around as a way of kind of embedding user-centered design and thinking in terms of policy making mm. and digital experience for citizens. And it's taken that long. Um, Easy. Yeah. And it's still, it's still I mean, a hill to climb. <laughs> absolutely. It, it's, it's not a case of like after 10 years, you kind of go right now it's done. It's really focusing on those little wins, those little um, pieces along the journey that you can celebrate because it'll go on forever. Um, leadership will change. Hopefully leadership gets more mature as they go along. But it's, um, it is really a, it's, it's a journey and it re requires lots of people to, to come together to, to make it happen. It's, it's never a case of just user experience standing alone kind of going, we did it. We finally <laughs> did it. It's, it's, it's bringing the, the other key functions. And that's why I see huge value in user experience designers looking at service design or customer experience to really understand how the business operates and really thinking of it like, um, you know, to, to quote Sarah Drummond, a good friend, uh, like the fabric of the organization and really looking at what we can actually do to support each other through the application of design. Yeah. And, and no, totally. And you, as I kind of mentioned at the outset, you 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 offer courses online and you're a, you're a, you're a coach and a mentor as well. I'm interested to know how that has kind of helped you sort of, you know, uh, in terms of kind of what you've learned from doing that. So for example, the podcast um, mm. that you run, you've, you've talked to many, many people over the last few years and some quite mm. sort of heavy hitters. What would you say you've learned from that experience in terms of your own practice and your own levels of kind of knowledge and expertise? When you're asking that question, the first thing that jumps out at me is um, it's not always the case that the people who are the heavy hitters have it all figured out. Yeah. Um, for a long time in my career, I was like, they've written a book. 
they must be so successful <laughs> and they must drive the most fancy car. That's not the case at all. Um, most of the people that um, I'm lucky enough to have spoken to and call friends or any of that kind of stuff, they're all still figuring it out and they're all still trying to um, learn and remain curious and open-minded about where the industry is going next. It's not a case of um, just assuming you know, people who are older have got everything sorted. Um, so what, what are the things that I've taken away from, from speaking to so many people? There's, there's quite a lot really. Um, but really it's just how much the conversations are changing. I mean, obviously the whole kind of the, the sort of proliferation of AI now into the conversations somewhat scares me, um, a little bit. Um, and that whole kind of need for speed, I keep on saying that phrase, the need for speed. I did it a couple of episodes in a row and people were like emailing me, why are you talking about Top Gun? But it is the need for speed has never really gone away in organizations. The whole kind of like the cheap fix, the quick fix. Mm. And that's my big kind of worry for organizations that they're just going to see uh, the opportunity to go faster. And in many cases, that is the quickest um, sort of recipe for disaster. We don't need to go faster. We need to go slower, um, if anything. And we need to reflect a lot more on how we're actually applying our practice. Because if you look at the historic trajectory of design over the last 25 or 30 years, where we're currently at, we're producing more things. And more things is not really what the world needs at the moment. If anything, we need less things. So um, we really need to take a little bit more of a step back. And that's the the, the friction um, or the dissonance between AI and where I'm currently sitting within organizations. And I'm actually going to, um, I'm going to Nuremberg on, on Friday. It's, uh, this week, actually, bloody hell, I need to book my hotel, <laughs> um, to talk about how AI is going to change organization structures with, um, Marcus Hormez is a good friend who was one of the contributors or one of, one of the main authors, should I say, of this is services I'm doing. So, it's an interesting space to be in, but I, I wish people would have a little bit more kind of um, appreciation for what's gone on over the last 25, 30 years to get design where it's at at the moment, to trivialize it somewhat and saying you can do your personas using AI and all this, this kind of stuff. It scares me a little bit because we could easily flush an awful lot of hard work down the toilet. Yeah. And I guess there's the risk, as you say, that particularly like misinformed senior leadership wanting to cut costs in organizations can use sort of chat GPT to do yep. research analysis or to design interfaces, whatever. And uh, yeah, that's the potentially the start of a slippery slope, isn't it? <laughs> Absolutely. And it's the bit that like, you know, it's very easy for us to get excited as designers when we see this stuff like, oh my God, that's so cool. You can actually use it to do these things. And I, all, I do believe that we should learn how to use it, but we can't let it use us. Um, in that sense, and we need to control it. Um, and I'm not all about like you know, saying AI is bad. I use AI, I use the uh, ChatGPT kind of stuff daily, but um, I wouldn't let it introduce itself into how I actually work as a designer. Um, not at the moment, anyway, especially not how I'm researching. So um, they're the bits that I'm most worried about. What does that mean for the research that we've spent? months doing to then just use ai to do the hard work but the 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 very 
strength of opinion and the amount of discussion that you hear in in the world, you know, whether it be in the in the media or kind of on LinkedIn or whatever, in terms of, I guess, AI and ChatGPT is testament to the the fears that people have and the and the kind of opportunities that exist as well. I can't think of many things that have exploded so quickly. Absolutely, it's, it's incredible, Scary. isn't it? It's sort of a watershed. Yeah, the speed for first hundred million users was like I think I saw that hockey stick is the only way people are describing it. It's the growth is just astonishing. So kind of coming back down to earth a little bit then in terms of, you know, product teams ensuring that they always have their users in mind when they're, you know, working on building yeah. products and services, how, you know, what should they do? How can they, how can they ensure that they're always being user-centered in your view? Um, how can they always assure that they're user-centered? Well, um, there's probably a few things that people tend to do. Um, one of the things is whenever you're researching, you, you you should always play back the findings to the broader organization, like really uh, highlight the work that you've done, having it on the wall, talking about it, bringing it to the other departments that may or may not have an interest in user experience, um, but really trying to tie those kind of connections up between the organization because what tends to happen is these silos occur around the organization when they're researching and you might have marketing do their own set of research and sales might be doing their own set of research to really identify how to how to sell better and so forth but by tri- by trying to bring those kind of people along in the journey you're really helping to reduce the distance between the silos mightn't be possible to reduce the silos completely but reduce the distance and hopefully open up conversations and that's really all you can expect to have happen in that early stage of like actually how are we doing this would it be better to, um, you know, offer the the research script to marketing and sales, and say, actually, I'm going to be speaking to this this subset of our of our customers. Is there anything you'd like me to ask? You don't have to ask it, but it's nice to be asked um, and included in those conversations to really bring those people on the journey as well. Because as I said, it's not design and design alone. You're working as part of a team. And that's the the big thing that I'm always trying to say to people is building those bridges with other departments is going to be the, the key factor in making sure that it really gets embedded. Because once they see the value in it, once they see the value in what we're trying to do, you've reduced the, the potential resistance and you've increased the likelihood that they'll buy into it. So um, they're one of the key things that I'm always trying to encourage people to do. Um, it's not about making other departments researchers, but it's really about bringing them on the journey and saying, well, look, this is what I do. I'm going to try and weave some of these conversations in and give you some um, value back as well so you can actually help more, make more strategic and strategically informed decisions based on the work that I've done. And the the mechanics of doing that, and I, I totally agree with what you just said, what in your view is the best way of kind of sharing those insights? Is it a is it a slide deck? Is it video clips? Is it getting everyone in a room? Is it is it recording something? Mm-hmm. So... It, that's a great question, okay? Because it's it's not one answer I can give you here and saying, I definitely think that what you need to do is a PDF and I've got a template available to download. I'm not going to be doing that kind of stuff. It really depends on the organization. I mean, if you're working in an organization that's got several different time zones and the, the, the office is kind of distributed all around the world or maybe they're fully remote, you've got a challenge on your hands. You know, you've got a place there that's built, uh, you know, the, the Atlassian toolkit. I've got a couple of places where you can put Confluence, you can put your research in. 
then you may as well probably put it in the toilet, <laughs> right? Because the likelihood of that delivering value when it sits on that repository is very low, okay? Like I've never really had conversations where people come in the next day and said, so I posted something in Confluence last night and it was brilliant. I read it on the way into work. I don't think I've ever had that conversation. That's no disrespect to the Atlassian team. Some of them do amazing work. But um, what I found to be really, really powerful was summarizing the research into video format. Okay, this is what's really worked for me over the years. I remember one instance where I'd done a whole load of research and I was getting zero uptake on it. Okay, I was getting nothing back from the organization. I'm not going to name the organization. But um, I asked for a budget because it was a really important piece of research and it required lots of people around the world to come together to really make it happen. And we didn't have a North Star. So what I did is I managed to get my hand on five grand. Okay, right. And I hired a very small production team in terms of a cameraman and uh, an editor. Okay. And I created a script based on the the research and the insights and I created a five minute video or six minute video I think it was entirety and we shared it around afterwards and it started so many conversations it was incredible and it really I got so much back from that one activity than I did from probably 20 or 30 rounds of research before but that was one thing that worked for me at that time, it's I'm not making a recommendation saying everyone should start doing videos for the sake of doing videos, but it really depends is the answer. I, I hate saying that on a user experience podcast, but it really depends. Of course. Um, what advice, Jerry, would you give to someone who aspired to uh, move into UX? I mean, maybe they're in a parallel discipline, maybe they're doing something completely different and they find out about this world and they think, hang on a minute, I'd like to learn more. What would you, what would you say? So in this scenario, I'm trying to ask more questions before I answer the question. Um, have they gone to university to study design? Is that a prerequisite, do you think? Not always, but for people to get into the design world, they'll more than likely need to have some sort of, um, you know, some sort of course that they've taken in some in some shape or form. So let's assume that they have. And that doesn't mean that they've gone to third level. It means that they might have done something online. They might have, um, you know, learned on the job, whatever it is, just but that they want to get into the world of design. If you're not lucky enough to live, excuse me, in a major city and you don't have user experience um, organizations around you that are hiring user experience designers, I always say just start with what you have. Now, if you're working in an organization, say, as a, a marketing assistant, for argument's sake, and you want to get into user experience and they have a user experience team, go over and speak to the user experience people, build a bridge. Um, or if you're in an organization that doesn't have a user experience function and you're working as a marketing assistant, maybe there's an opportunity there for you to go and suggest that you could work as a user experience for a proportion of your time each week to start the movement off. So it depends really um, on the organization and the opportunities that lie in front of you. But I would always encourage people to try and get the opportunities within the organization that they're currently at. Get those skills and get those opportunities and those projects under their belt before they start looking and Googling for user experience jobs, because it's much easier to get a job when you have some of those experiences. If none of that is possible, Mike, 
and you don't have anything uh, like that that I've just spoken about, then do a project on your own. Okay, go to a charity, go to your local florist, go to your mum and dad's shop or your uncle or whoever it is, your auntie has got a shop online and offer your help. Okay. Um, I'm a big fan of not working for free, but offer in return for something. If it means you're getting a free bunch of flowers each week, you might get really popular with your mum and dad, but do something as long as there's, a, there's a, an exchange of value happening uh, as often as possible. But for you really at that stage, it's all about getting the experience. That's the most important and working with people who have that experience. They're the critical factors for success. That's what's going to determine your success in your career over the next couple of years afterwards. Mm-hmm. What do you love, Jerry, about what you do? What do I, speaking to Mike Green is one of the things that I love at the top of my uh, top of my list. What do I love? I think the thing that I love the most, um, and it's interesting. If you'd asked me this five years ago, I probably would have said the industry. But I'm at the point in my career where I'm now like early to mid forties, and I'm starting to to look at what m- my kind of impact is, where my strengths are. And doing that self um, kind of reflection piece over the last number of years has been really, really important to me. What do I love? I love trying to help people. That really is what my, um, that's what gets me up in the morning, okay? That's the the bit that lights a fire in my belly. It's less so sitting down and writing research plans and doing the design the design work, as we would probably call it. I'm much more interested in the people, the, the what really drives them uh, and understanding those kind of triggers and those ingredients that we need to foster more of. Um, and it's led me to, to create my next business, which I've been working on over the last nine months, which is called the Makers and Doers School, which is bringing design thinking um, to children between the ages of six and 12. Because when you've trained, I've trained probably a couple of thousand people in my career at this stage, I'm at that point where I start to question the adults who are kind of looking to learn and upskill. And then they go back to the organizations where maybe they can't always apply. And they can't always have the, the liberated kind of approach to applying the stuff that they know is the best due to the organizational structures and hierarchy. So I think it's really about working with the next generation to foster, you know, the future accountants who've got more of a design lens uh, to dial into or, or the the doctors who've got more of a design appreciation to help them articulate how we can improve products and services. That's that's the stuff that really um, gets me excited about is the, is the next wave of generation that we're already working towards. Mm. That's fascinating. I'm going to get my kids onto that. I'm sure they'd love to have a look at the makers and doers school. <laughs> well, well, it's it's launching in Dublin first in uh, July. We've got a summer camp. It's nearly sold out. And then we're doing weekly classes. And then it'll launch in next year in the south side of Dublin. And then after that, we're looking for people to take it up in the UK, in the US and Australia. Hopefully. That's my plan anyway. Fantastic. And on the flip side, what frustrates yeah. you, Jerry, or what challenges you about what you do about our world in general? What frustrates me is um, we've all been doing this for, you know, a long time, okay? And we've made huge 
leaps okay like i mean people say oh it's not moved quick enough i've lived through a large part of the growth of the digital stuff like where we where we were and where we are now is night and day okay things don't happen overnight okay so it's really that I'm aware that I do sound like an old fogey when I say that. I'm like, in my day, we didn't have Figma. <laughs> but it is really true. Like, you know, the things do, you know, when you look at it in a, kind of a zoomed out perspective, things have improved an, an awful lot for our craft and for our industry. Um, but I still kind of, um, I, I, I see a, a distinct lack of values and ethical considerations in how we work across a lot of design. And it's the bit that still kind of um, amazes me. Um, it, we're, we're still at that point where uh, I, I had one, one person email me and said, would you like to do training for us? And they were from an oil company. Okay. And I said, I'm sorry, I, I don't work for oil companies. Uh, it's one of one of the the listed piece, pieces on my website, and they're like, "Why wouldn't you train us in an oil company?" And I said, "Well, you're contributing to the destruction of the earth." And he, they, that this person didn't understand. They didn't. They hadn't thought about this. Well, I presume they hadn't thought about because they were asking the questions. And it was really amazing to me that sometimes people don't stop and think about their role in working in these organizations. And sure enough, the counter argument to this is there's an opportunity for them to improve that business and how they're operating. That is true. Okay. There's no way around that. But for me, um, the, the, the most interesting piece in that was their lack of awareness about why I wouldn't want to work with them. Um, and that's really important. I feel like we're at that point in, in time where I wish more people, um, would sit back and explore coaching or explore, you know, going to see a psychologist, whatever, to really understand their mind and why they do this for a living. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Although I guess the counterpoint to that, and I, although I agree with what you say, is that old chestnut about it's hard to make a man believe something when his salary is dependent on him believing the, the yeah. converse, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean... That is a really, uh, it's a really important distinction. Like certain things like this does depend on privilege. Okay. And I know it sounds like there's a certain amount of privilege coming out of my mouth when I say that. Um, but it is a conversation that everyone should have. There's obviously considerations where, you know, food on the table for families, that's number one. Um, but I still think the conversation has merit and I still think that people can do and receive an awful lot from thinking and exploring this and understanding themselves a lot more. Yeah, totally. Last thing, just a few minutes what? left. Three card challenge. Yeah. So I'm going to hold three up my three challenge. rather dog eared cards. Go for the ace. Go for the ace. Always. <laughs> so this is a this is a tool, Jerry. So what is yeah. your out of interest? Do you have a tool of choice that you use in your work? Um, in my work, well, here's one that I found in the last week or two. Um, and people would be like, we know that one already, Jerry. It's called Speechify, okay, which I think is such a generic name, okay? It's like, what do we call our business? There's Spotify and there's Shopify. And what does this one do? We'll call it Speechify. And Speechify um, allows me to read um, PDFs and books um, faster, okay? Um, it basically has an AI 
AI, ding, 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 ding. He said AI. It allows me, it uses Gwyneth Paltrow, Snoop Dogg, or David Attenborough are the, are the key kind of voices that you can That's use. That's an interesting it's trio you don't normally see together. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Snoop Dogg, Gwyneth Paltrow, and David or David Attenborough went into a bar. Anyway, I think I think Gwyneth Paltrow must have invested in this thing because why else would they be doing it? But um, it, it basically says that there's thirty percent increase in comprehension because as you're reading, the audio is coming back to you as well, and you can control the speed of the words coming back to you. So for me, I'm reading a book at the moment, and I'm interviewing them tomorrow on my podcast. Um, and what would normally take me, I'm notoriously bad at finding time to read. By the way, folks, it's just really hard with two young kids. I can read the entire book in about three and a half hours. Okay. Now I am having to focus for three and a half hours intensely because I'm doing about 280 words a minute, wow. <laughs> but um, you, you're, you're taking it in smaller bites. So you might do 30 minutes and then take a break and you're like, okay, take my notes, but it allows you to get through books much quicker. Um, so if you're in that space of trying to synthesize or read large reports or white papers, classic it is a really really good tool brilliant can i also just give another a, a notable shout out to my other preferred tool and i am not an investor in this tool but i love to give a shout out to smaply and smaply.com is and has always been my preferred journey mapping tool of choice um a disclaimer mark stickthorn and Jakob own that business and they're friends, but I've got no kind of other reason to say it other than I've always used it and I love the tool. So smaply.com is my one of my favorite tools to use uh, from a design perspective. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Understanding Users. If you enjoyed what you heard, do please like or comment wherever you're listening and feel free to share this episode more widely. And feel free, of course, to drop me a line with any feedback via LinkedIn or my website, researchable.uk. Join me again next time when I'll be sharing some more insights from digital design professionals. Until then, stay safe and stay user-centered.